please open your Bibles to Psalm 7. Psalm 7, uh, and I'll read the whole psalm. Psalm 7, a Shigion of of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjaminite. O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me, lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it, and let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Arise, O Lord, in your anger, Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me, you have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. My shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. I will give to the Lord the thanks due his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. Lord God, we uh, acknowledge the words of that song, that you are the holy God, the one and the only the majestic king, the ruler, the judge, the one who is merciful towards us, uh, our father. Uh, And Lord, we pray that as we study your word this morning, as we read this psalm, uh, that we would, uh, as that song says, come and behold you uh, and cry out that you are worthy uh, of all worship and praise uh, because you are good and just and righteous. So we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. When I was a kid, I remember asking my dad a question about heaven. Will there be dirges in heaven? Will there be songs of mourning in heaven? Uh, Perhaps that sounds like a silly question, Um, and I suspect dad probably thought it was um, fair enough. Uh, But my thinking behind the question was, we all know heaven will obviously be a place of joy, that we'll be singing praise to God, but won't we be sad that there's so many people in hell? Won't we sing dirges mourning the people who never saw the glories of heaven? 
Now, having grown up and knowing the Bible a bit more now, uh, I can answer my own question. No, there won't be dirges in heaven. On the contrary, as we've just read from the book of Revelation, God will be praised for enacting his judgment. Perhaps you find that a bit surprising or even confronting. I kind of do. You know, it's we want people to escape God's judgment, right? God's isn't God's judgment the bad news, the, the the good news, the gospel saves us from. How are we going to praise God for His judgment on unbelievers? How are we supposed to come to terms with that? Well, the way that we learn to do that is the same way uh, that the biblical authors did, by looking to God. Uh, We are going to need to see God's judgment through the eyes of the faith, through the eyes of Scripture. Uh, And as we do, we'll find that it really is good news that God judges evil. Uh, Psalm 7 Uh, is one of those passages that is all about the judgment of God and closes with a song of praise, as we just read. And so as we read this psalm and look at God's judgment through David's eyes, we'll see uh, how perfect and praiseworthy and even precious God's judgment is. Uh, And we'll see three reasons for why God's just judgment is good news. Uh, The first one is in the first five verses, uh, and it's this. God will judge the righteous and deliver them. God will judge the righteous and deliver them. Uh, Many of you, I'm sure, had siblings as kids. Uh, Maybe you remember being uh, a kid and playing with a toy, uh, and one of your siblings comes along and snatches the toy away. Uh, I expect, as is usually the case, fighting ensued. I was playing with that first. I wasn't finished playing with that. Well, I've got it now, so you're not playing with it anymore, are you? But it's not your turn. You've got to wait your turn. Well, now I'm playing with it, so you wait your turn. But you took my toy. Well, find another toy. And, of course, the screaming causes Mum to come running. So uh, you make your case. Mum, he stole my toy. I was playing with it and then he snatched it away from me. Uh, at the same time, of course, your sibling says, I was playing nicely. He just started screaming when I, took a, when I wanted to play with his toy. No, that's not true. You started it when you took my toy. At this point, of course, if your mum was like most mums, uh, she probably said something like, well, I don't care who started it. I'm finishing it. With that, mum takes away the toy, problem solved. No one gets to play with it. Now, I'm not going to make, I'm not trying to make any comments on parenting or anything like that. But if you're the kid who was playing with it first, you kind of feel a bit jibbed in this situation. Yes, you yelled at your sibling, so in that sense you weren't in the right. But You know, you were the one who was stolen from. Isn't it the just thing to 
the, give the toy back to the person who it was stolen from? Okay, maybe I'm carrying this a little bit far. But the point I'm trying to make, oftentimes justice isn't just about the negative punishment, but also the positive, doing right to those who have been wronged. Putting good into the hands of those who have been who, who, have, who it has been stolen from. That positive aspect of judgment, doing good for the righteous person who's been wronged, is the core idea behind this first section. Uh, again, Psalm 7, we're told, is a shigayon of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjaminite. Uh, now, if you... Uh, um, I'm not sure about what that's referring to, then you can join the club. Uh, there's no one in the Bible who named Cush who said unjust things to David. Um, so we, can, we have to sort of speculate a bit on what this refers to. Uh, given that Cush was a Benjaminite, though, we see that this is an Israelite who's wronged King David. Probably, uh, given that Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin, it could be a reference to Saul, but it's probably someone, uh, at the very least, who's oppressing David because he's king in place of Saul, or because God chose him to be king in place of Saul. Uh, And so, in response to those words, David turns to God. Verse 1, he says, O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me, lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. David is turning to the Lord, presenting his case that he has been wronged and justice needs to be served. God, of course, is the right place to turn for justice. The throne of God is where ultimate justice is found. If we long for true justice, like David, we should present our case to the true judge because his justice is true justice. But there's a danger in appealing to God for justice because God knows when we're in the wrong and he will hold us to account for that. So David prays in verse 3, O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it and let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. That's a brave thing to pray. I have to admit I don't think I've ever prayed like that. God, if I'm in the wrong, I'll face the consequences. I just want to see justice put right. That's a, that's a, a brave thing to pray. I'm guessing most of us probably don't pray like that. And because we know that most of the time we're not in the right. Uh, who among us can say uh, that you've never treated anyone around you poorly? You've never twisted the truth uh, or belittled a friend to make yourself look better. You've never skimped on the job or taken more pay than you deserve. You've never slighted a rival or been cruel to someone you don't like. All of those in these, in these verses uh, would be enough to bring justice, uh, to bring 
punishment down upon you. Which perhaps begs the question, why is David praying this? Even granting the fact that this was probably written before his sin with Bathsheba, surely a righteous person, even even a a you know above average sort of righteous person like David, must have done wrong and defrauded others at some point. And yet, David prays that God will work justice, fully expecting, as he says in verse ten that God will give him a favourable response. Um, to answer that question, let me uh, veer off a little bit from that line of thinking and we'll uh, take a little detour to get a better vantage point. Uh, turn with me, please, to 1 Peter chapter 2. Like Hans said, there's going to be a little bit of flicking around today. But 1 Peter chapter 2 is a really helpful perspective. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, I'm going to start by reading verses 22 and 23. Uh, Peter writes, He committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Uh, Who's Peter talking about there? If you didn't know the context, you might think he was commenting on Psalm 7. Uh, because that's exactly what David is doing. He's, uh, or at least claiming to do, um, he's committing no sin in response to being wronged and entrusting himself to God who judges justly. Uh, but Peter is, in fact, talking about someone of whom this is 100% true. Uh, Jesus, who suffered unjustly and never once sinned. Jesus fulfills this picture of a righteous man suffering unjustly and presenting his case before God that we see in Psalm 7. But not only that, Jesus shares his righteousness and all the good standing before God that comes with that. He shares that with us. As Peter goes on to say, verse 24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. And so, uh, like David, we are... we find our righteousness by faith in God. Uh, We, at Jesus fulfilled Psalm 7, this idea of someone suffering unjustly, we follow in Jesus' steps and David foreshadowed them. Uh, As Peter writes, Uh, Again, in verses 19 to 21, he calls us to follow in Jesus' footsteps. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. The rest of all of scripture consistently affirms that it is those who put their faith in Jesus who are truly righteous. Uh, Or in the words of Psalm 7, uh, as David says in verse 1, the first thing he appeals to is that he has taken refuge in God. 
so too we, if we put our faith in Jesus, have taken refuge in the righteousness of Christ. We are covered by that righteousness. We are righteous by faith. And so if we suffer for that righteousness, God will hear our cry for justice, judge judge us as righteous and deliver us. And that's why God's just judgment is good news. Uh, The second reason we see in verses 6 to 11. God's just judgment is good news because God will judge the nations and crush evil. God will judge the nations and crush evil. Uh, In many of the Psalms, and particularly ones towards the start of the book, there's this key central question. Who does the world really belong to? Who really rules the world? Uh, Psalm 2 sets this up really Um, The kings of the earth, it says, set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. The point is God has set up his king, God has chosen his people and promised them the world. But everyone else obviously doesn't like that. And so rather than joining themselves to God's people, they attack. The nations try to take what God has given to his people. The rulers of the world try to claim the crown that God has given to Jesus, his anointed king. And the question is then, who has the rightful claim? Um, Maybe it's helpful to think about this on a smaller scale. Uh, This is, I guess, in some ways analogous to someone uh, coming coming up to you in your home and saying, I don't agree that you own this house. I'm taking it for myself. Now, you'd probably tell him to get lost. Uh, But maybe he has friends or maybe he's stronger than you or something like that. Um, So you'd take them to court. And you would say, judge, look at all these records. You can plainly see that this property belongs to me, not him. And the judge would, of course, agree. And he would tell the other person to get lost. And he would have to listen. Because that's what the judge is there for. To decree right and wrong and to use their authority to make right happen. Which is exactly how these verses of the psalm play out. Uh, In verses 6 and 7, David calls on God as the cosmic judge, the judge of the universe, to convene his court and for God to take his seat at the bench arise O Lord in your anger lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies awake for me you have appointed a judgment let the assembly of the peoples be gathered around you over it return on high Uh, there's such a, a, a powerful image here all the nations all people gathered together in a in a big mob a sea of humanity these tiny little pathetic guilty, cowering humans, and Judge Yahweh standing above it all with his throne and his gavel ruling and judging the world. Verse 8, the Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. O let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. 
My shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. Well, like any good judge, God determines the right from the wrong, establishes justice and puts a stop to evil. This is God's authority and power put on full display and used to full effect. Now this should fill us with as much thankfulness as it did David because it's plain to see that there isn't really any less evil and injustice going on in the world now than there was when David first sang these words. The nations still oppose his God and his anointed King Jesus and his chosen people, the church. Uh, of course, there are surface reasons why Christians are being pushed out of the influential positions of the world and there are deeper cultural reasons, but the heart of the matter is the world does not want Jesus as king. The world doesn't want God to tell them what to do. The world doesn't like that the meek will inherit the earth. And that's why Christians are being marginalised. That's why you might not necessarily find justice out there. But it's not just the world out there opposing. Remember, David was facing opposition from a fellow Israelite, disregarding God's word and refusing to submit to God's king. <clears throat> and likewise today, there are people who call themselves Christian, who should know better, who align themselves with the world against God's revealed truth. Jesus warned, them, warned us about them, wolves in sheep's clothing uh, who come to deceive and devour the flock, people who hear his words and refuse to obey. And throughout the New Testament and indeed throughout church history, right down to the present day, the greatest threats that the church has faced come from among her own members. As the hymn says, with a scornful wonder men see her here oppressed, by schisms rent asunder, by heresies distressed. Yet saints their watcher keeping, their cry goes up how long, for soon the night of weeping shall be the morn of song. The divisions and deceptions and destructions from within the church will continue until the day when Jesus finally separates the sheep from the goats, the wheat from the tares, the true from the fake. He will judge fake so-called Christians along with the world they loved so much and he will destroy evil. And thus he will purify his bride so that we will live in perfect joy. One church without one true God for all eternity. And that's why God's just judgment is good news. Our third re- the third reason comes in the remaining verses of the psalm, and the reason is God's judge- just judgment is good news because God will judge the unrepentant and glorify himself. God will judge the unrepentant and glorify himself. Now at this point I want to answer an objection. And I already sort of alluded to this in my introduction but I haven't really answered that problem that I set forward. Sure, there are positive fruits of the destruction of unrepentant sinners, but can we really rejoice over their eternal damnation? As we read from Revelation, 
And as, we're, as we read in this psalm, God's just judgment on unbelievers is occasion for praise. But we instinctively recoil from that. We, we sort of cringe. Isn't that unloving? Isn't that taking pleasure in the death of the wicked, which the Bible explicitly tells us God doesn't do? How can it be godly to praise him for his judgment meted out on people? Uh, Well, Hans read from uh, Leviticus 10, and I want you to turn back there, please, with me. Back to Leviticus chapter 10. Uh, In that passage, Nadab and Abihu, two sons of Aaron the high priest, uh, were told, offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded him. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. What precisely they did is unclear, but God in his holiness and justice struck them dead because of it. And Aaron, as the high priest, charged with upholding the glory and holiness of God, was forbidden from mourning their deaths, even though they were his own sons, because this act of judgment was a display of God's holiness for his glory. Verse 3, Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said, among those who are near me I will be sanctified, and and before all the people I will be glorified, and Aaron held his peace. Uh, and then in verses 6 and 7, God, uh, sorry, uh, Moses made the instruction even more explicit. Don't do all those things that you would normally do when you're in mourning. Only the extended relatives can mourn the death of Nadab and Abihu. Now, it bears pointing out that these are not a normative practice for Israel or the church. Again, it's not... Uh, normal for us to be forbidden from mourning the death of loved ones. This is a unique role of Aaron and a unique time in Israel's history. The point is not that we shouldn't grieve over loved ones who die in their sin. We should absolutely grieve their loss, their sin and its consequences. But what God's instructions to Aaron show is that our concern for God's glory and holiness should outweigh even our concern for those who die in their sin. Our love for God's glory must be even greater than our love for lost souls. Uh, back in chapter, uh, back in Psalm 7, this is the attitude that David himself exemplifies in these final verses. His focus here, notice, is solely, squarely on the justice and righteousness of God. Verses 12 to 16, if a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Excuse me. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. 
These verses show the judgment of God, how it personally impacts those who refuse to repent. God is fully prepared to enact justice on the wicked, to do what's right and bring about the death of the evildoer. God is pictured as a warrior, sword sharpened, bows stretched, arrows flaming and knocked. And, of course, all of this culminates in a song of praise for God's justice in verse 17. I will give to the Lord the thanks due his righteousness and I will sing praise to the name of the the Lord the Most High. As well he should praise God. Uh, God's God's judgment is just and deserved. Uh, Notice in verse 14 how the wicked man is described. He conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. This is such a powerful, impactful metaphor. Um, Makes me think of rabbits. You know, a pair of rabbits might look a bit cute, but we know they multiply at a prodigious rate. Two rabbits will breed destruction at a shocking rate. Or you think of a spider's egg sac, a tiny little ball of, of white, an innocuous little blob hidden in a corner. But before you know it, hundreds or thousands of tiny, deadly arachnids are going to pour, stream out of this tiny little ball of nothingness and spread into everything. An unrepentant sinner breeds destruction. They multiply evil wherever they go. And this is true of all humanity. This is what we are like in our sin. Each of us has the potential to breed evil like this. But remember the person that David is, has in the forefront of his mind here. Someone like Cush who breeds evil within the pe- among the people of God. Someone who brings destruction into the church. How much worse, Hebrews says, is the person who sat under the teaching of Jesus and repudiated it. Someone who heard the gospel and rejected it. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Notice how the judgment is both the sovereign act of God and the natural consequence of sin. 
His destruction comes back on himself. He falls into the pit that he dug, the trap that he laid. He falls prey to the very violence that he himself planned. Both through the natural consequences of sin and God's own personal act of judgment, God is bringing perfect justice to bear on those who would not have it any other way. And that's exactly what this person is like. They would not have it any other way. The choice is there. God has given this person, he gives to all of us a chance to repent, a chance to turn and stop the sinful ways and take refuge in him. God is patient, slow to anger, ready to forgive on account of the death of Jesus in our place. But those who refuse to turn to God, those who persist in their sin, right down to their deaths, those who will have it no other way, but willfully choose their own sin over the mercy of God, on them God's justice will fall with terrifying finality. The choice is yours whether you persist in your wickedness and fall under God's judgment. You can choose to take refuge in God, to find life and righteousness in Jesus Christ. The offer is open. Will you repent? If you repent, God will be your shield. If not, he will be a sword against you. The choice is yours. But we see the glory of God on full display. As verse 17 says again, I will give to the Lord the thanks due his righteousness and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord the Most High. God's glory is our highest goal and our highest joy. And beholding his holiness and justice is a good thing. And so this psalm ends with a song of praise. How else could it end after such a sweeping, grand exploration of the glories of God's justice and judgment? The just judgment of God uh, is perfect and praiseworthy and even precious. His justice is deserving of thanksgiving, says David, and I will sing in praise of the just God, the judge of all. Why then do we struggle to sing praise of God's justice, of his judgment? Why do we squirm when we hear the praise of revelation, thanking God for his just rule and holy judgment? Why do we thank God for his kindness, but not his judgment, his love, but not his holiness, his mercy, but mercy, but not his wrath? We need to learn from this psalm that God's just judgment is a good thing. It is good because it is an act of our good God, an outworking of his good character. And again, that is how we see this as good, by focusing on God and his character. That is how we learn to praise him for his justice. Uh, Now, if that's something you would like to grow in, um, I have printed off um, a few copies of this resource, and they're out in the foyer. Um, The idea is it's 31 names and attributes of God, uh, one for each day of the month. So you read uh, each day, 
what God is like. Uh, There will be an attribute that you can thank God for, including a little blurb about how we see it in Scripture, what it means for us and why it's something that we can thank God for. Uh, Today's reading, for example, on the 15th, uh, has to do with the eternality of God, uh, then tomorrow God's faithfulness and then his glory and so on. And so over the course of the month, uh, you praise God for his love and mercy and also his holiness and justice and even attributes that maybe you don't think about much like independence or jealousy. Uh, plus a bunch of God's names too which tell us about what God is like. <clears throat> um, again, I've got a few copies out there in the foyer that you can take home uh, so you can spend the next month uh, learning about and thanking God for attributes that maybe you haven't thought about God or uh, praised God much for in your life. But right now, let's uh, pray and thank God for the goodness of his just judgment. O oh Lord God, righteous and holy judge of all, we praise you for your goodness. We thank you that you have made a way for us to take refuge in you, to be counted as your righteous people, even though we are unworthy sinners before you. Lord, we pray that you would not hold our sins against us, but that you would turn us from the unbelieving world in true repentance. And we pray that you would purge us individually and corporately so that we would be a church where righteousness and humility and love shine forth. Uh, And Lord, we pray that you would come swiftly to judge. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered around you. Over it, return on high. We know and we rejoice that you are a righteous judge, that you hate evil and that you have a plan to rid the world of it and to establish your people as the meek and righteous inheritors of the world. May you teach us, Lord, to praise and glorify you As we meditate more on your justice and your righteous vengeance against the wicked, may we give to you the thanks due to your righteousness. And may we sing praise to your name, O Most High. Amen.